Good morning, Grace. Hey, uh, why don't we start our time by praying for the people that are doing such a great job of serving us in, in this time of, of this frostbitten freeze coming in, okay? Lord, I, we are grateful for the men and women that, that are taking care of us. Uh, we pray for the first responders and, and the men and women that serve in that category, that, Lord, we're asking that you would keep them safe that you'd allow them to endure over long periods of time. If they're having to do double or triple shifts, I'd ask that you would bless their families and give them understanding for the circumstances. The linemen, Lord, that are up in these cherry pickers and having to cut tree limbs and, and restore power lines, I'd ask that you would protect them as well, that their families would be filled with grace and understanding towards what needs to be done. We're grateful to be knowing with confidence that you are in control, that we are not alone, and we're here to serve one another. Give us some insight and understanding of how we can serve our neighbors, how we can reach out and maybe provide food or shelter or, or food for those that are not able to get those resources. So. Bless our time. Let the church be the church in this time of need. Open our hearts and our minds to the lessons of Ecclesiastes, chapters 3 through 5, that we might learn and live a life that glorifies you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks. thank you again for joining me uh, in your living room. T several years ago, I had an opportunity to serve as a teaching assistant at Gordon-Conwell, which is a school of theology in Boston. And while I was in Boston, I felt like I needed to take advantage of the opportunity to audit a class by a man that actually changed the way I viewed the world. He, his name is Dr. Peter Kraft. He was a philosophy professor at Boston College for over 30 years, written over 30 books, and was teaching a class at Boston College called the search for happiness and the meaning of life. So if you can imagine this renowned professor that was quoted in the Wall Street Journal and Time Magazine is sought after in many different ways. Uh, he's been called the American C.S. Lewis, is teaching a class on the search of happiness and meaning in life. We, and we were studying the writings of uh, Solomon, the book of Ecclesiastes, Aristotle, Buddha, Confucius, Pascal, and Dostoevsky, and even more. So you'd think we would probably fill the basketball stadium with people that want to know the meaning of life and, and the pursuit of happiness. There were 37 people in the class. About 30 of them were undergrads, and seven of them were men and women between maybe 35 and maybe 70. So there were people there trying to find out the meaning of life, and some people were just trying to get some credits done. Somewhere around that third lecture, one of the hands goes up and one of the students interrupts Dr. Kraft and says, is this going to be on the test? <laughs> many of the older people were snickering and Dr. Kraft was able to compose himself enough to say, the test? You mean for the course or for life? Well, today's lecture, today's teaching time in Ecclesiastes chapters 3 through 5, this is on the test. The test of life. <laughs> This is going to help us negotiate how to live, the meaning in the, of life and the pursuit of happiness. Blaise Pascal said that every choice we make is a choice towards happiness. 
We make different types of choices, but it's all to pursue happiness. Let me read a quote from him. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they use, they all tend towards this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding war, they both desire the same thing, to be happy. Now look at this. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. Every action of every man is towards happiness. Even the person hanging themselves, thinking they're going to be happy by doing that. In our pursuit of happiness as, as humans, we find that pursuit thwarted, blocked, invaded, frustrating. And so today, here's what I want us to do. I want us to look at this. What is, why is happiness so elusive for the human experience? And then two, how can we find contentment? How can we find happiness? That's what our guide Solomon is going to help us with. Solomon is uh, the author of Ecclesiastes. He is the wisest, wealthiest, and most powerful man in Old Testament Israel. And he's going to help us find happiness and somehow help us understand why it's so elusive. In chapters 1 and 2 of Ecclesiastes, it was life without God, and that was despair. These chapters, 3 through 5, it's life with God. He's going to mention being with God here, but it shows that life is confusing. We can love God with all our hearts and still have a life that's very perplexing. We can find ourselves wanting to enjoy God's presence, but we wonder, is anyone in control of creation? It just seems at times to have run amok. So in summary, here's what uh, Solomon's going to help us understand. One is that God has an all-embracing, beautiful plan, and we can't know that plan. That God has a vast, eternal, comprehensive plot, and we want to know that plot, but it's way above our pay grade. We want to, I don't know, be as people that are in the image of God, and because of that, we, we want to know why, and we can't understand the answer. That's the frustration with our happiness. So let's start with the first aspect of what Solomon's teaching us, and that is that God has a beautiful plan. God has a beautiful plan. I'm going to read some, uh, a passage, a poem to you that is probably familiar. It's been made into a very popular song, and the summary of it is in chapter 3, verse 1, and, and, and from then, from that point on, he's going to introduce this poem, and he's going to say the word time or season 28 times. There'll be 14 couplets. And the idea there is, is to, to show that God has a beautiful plan, and every single thing is part of that plan. So he'll take the two extremes in each one of these circumstances to, to show you that Everything is foreordained by God, and man is responsible for his choices. It's all-encompassing. It's including everything from birth to death and all in between. Chapter 3, verse 1 summarizes that, which is, There is a time for everything, a season for every activity under the sun. It goes on. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to kill, a time to heal. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to search and a time to give up, a time to be silent, a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, 
and a time for peace. See how all-inclusive it is? It is every aspect of every part of life, both individually and collectively. He is in control of all things. Every con- and the condition of man, that's the, that's the story there, that this beautiful story, this beautiful plot, an amazing plan. The condition of man, however, is desiring to know what that plan is and how all things fit together. And so after that, that series of parallels, now in verse 11, one of, honestly, one of the top 50 verses in the Bible, chapter 3, verse 11, shows us why we're in the situation we're in with a frustration to find contentment. Chapter 3, verse 11 has two parts. There's good news, and then there's unsettling news. Chapter 3, verse 11, the good news. And God has made everything beautiful in its time. God has made everything beautiful in its time. And the application, if it just stops there, this is how you apply that. And that is to drink deeply into into every season that you're in. Each season, a time to speak or a time to be quiet. Whatever that season is, whatever that circumstance, whatever that event is, enjoy that. Even grief, even grief. Drink it to the end, to the bottom. Find every passion that we are allowed to experience under the supervision of the Holy Spirit. If we're surrendered to the Holy Spirit, all things are part of the human experience and express that. So even in sorrow, even in grief, this might be a season of grief, drink it in all the way. Experience the fullness of what it means to be fully human. That's, that's part one, the good news. Now the unsettling. He says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. And then he says, God has also set eternity in their heart and yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. There's two sections there. The first one is God has set eternity in the heart of man. What does that mean? Well, uh, Walter Kaiser, he's a great scholar, uh, especially, and he wrote a commentary on the book of Ecclesiastes. He says the definition of God putting eternity in the heart of each man is this. It is the quest... This is a deep-seated quest or desire, a compulsive drive, because man is made in the image of God to appreciate the beauty of all creation, that's at an aesthetic level, and, and to know the character and the meaning of the world in an academic level. And it is to, to, discern, to discern purpose and destiny. It is the majesty and the madness of the whole thing. In other words, here's what he's saying. We, man is designed with this inborn uh, inquisitiveness to pursue things and to know things and to see how all things are integrated and, and fit together, right? Man is a natural born philosopher. He asks the question, why? Why is it this way? Why does it have to be this way? We look at every event in its particulars and see how it could fit part of a general plan or program. And and whether it's a tragedy or a surprise bonus from work, we're thinking, okay, this is all part of something bigger because man is made that way. We want to find those things out. There's a grand scheme. We want to know why. And again, look at the second part of, of verse 11. It says that God has made everything beautiful in its time. God also set eternity in their hearts. And yet there it is, the yet, yet. 
so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. We, are, we have this eternity in our heart, so we want to know what God is up to, and we want to know what that plan is, and we can't. We want, we want to know that. We need to know that. We, we must. We must know the big plan, and we can't enjoy it. We, we don't have the capacity to comprehend it. And, and this is like an addiction. It's, in a, it's a compulsion to need to know. Everything must fit. Let me give you an example of how we do this, just in, in regular experiences. When you look at the evening stars at night, like this is, look at the beautiful Milky Way. And when you stare at that, if you look at it long enough, you're going to see the various stars lining up and that's where we get our zodiac signs. Here's our zodiac signs. Can you, can you see Leo, the lion? Yeah, you see how they're, yeah, how about cancer as a crab? Do you, do you see that? See how the stars are, are like putting themselves in a way that you can, it looks like a crab? No, you don't see that? Because it's not there. There's no, there's no lion in the stars. There's no, there's no crap. There's no zodiac signs. And yet we just keep going along with it like, oh, yeah, that's the nature of man. We're going to connect these dots so that they turn into some kind of drawing and they don't connect. We fill in gaps that should not be filled in. And this addiction to try to make things fit into our ability to comprehend, this addiction is our ruin. The nature of man, that's what we're going to look at today. This is what's called anthropology. And this is going to help us not just understand the book of Ecclesiastes, it's going to help us understand our lives and, and then how to live with happiness, how to have contentment. We have to understand first kind of the nature of man. This is on the test. Now, if you look at scholars throughout the ages, you'll see that many of them come to the same conclusion about the nature of man. We're talking about, at least in the Western world, there's, there's Aquinas and uh, there's Malcolm Mugridge, there's Reinhold Niebuhr, C.S. Lewis, uh, Blaise Pascal. These men have come to realize that the nature of man, his place in creation, is unique. Man is stuck. He's stuck in between. Reinhold Niebuhr, in his textbook, textbooks on anthropology, he, he, he paints a graphic picture of where we are. He says creation is like a giant sail ship, okay? And, and there's a mast that goes up from the top to bottom. That's a giant pole. It's called a mast. And the bottom is the deck, and at the top of the mast, there's a crow's nest. And, and, and that represents creation. And at the bottom, at the base, where our, the passions are, are and some kind of some ugly things in life, that's, those are the mammals. Those, that's the animal kingdom. And at the top, that are small g gods, angels, if you will. Man is placed in creation stuck in the middle between the animals and the angels, between the apes and deity. And we're unique there. And in our uniqueness, we're a little bit lost. In between a mouse and a maker, man is stuck mid-mast, and we don't know what to do with that because it's hard to hold on mid-mast. And we have inclinations to, one, climb up to the top of the crow's nest and become like small g-gods where we're in control of everything. We make our own rules because we can, 
Sometimes we just, you know, slide down the mast, find ourselves on the deck with the other animals, and we just go by instinct. Whatever passions lead us, they will take, will go to where, where they tell us to go. Ultimately, there's, there's a temptation towards pride or simple sensuality. Man is stuck in the middle. Here's what Malcolm Buckridge writes about it. He says, if God is dead, like in our hearts or in a culture, if God is dead, somebody's going to have to take his place. It is either megalomania or erotomania, the drive for power or the drive for pleasure, a clenched fist or a phallus, Hitler or a Hugh Hefner. Staying mid-mast where we belong, alone, like nothing else in creation, that requires a lot of work. Sometimes we just grow tired. And so we go down to the first deck, we go down, like in, in Ecclesiastes chap, chapters 1 and 2, where Solomon finds himself just appeasing all his appetites with the women and the wine. Sometimes our passions get the best of us. It ruins our life, right? Other temptations, we find ourselves climbing to the top and realizing I'm going to be in control of whatever's in my little kingdom. And that's where you get like helicopter parents or, or a bully of a boss. You're going to salute when I walk into the room. That's the way we do these things. It's like fight or flight, but not in the context of the animal kingdom, but it's fight or flight. Go to the top or go to the bottom. 10,000 Maniacs. You remember that band from the, what, 80s, 90s? They, they wrote a song that said, well, if, if lust and hate is their candy, then, hey, give them what they want. You want to be hateful? Go to the top. You want to feel lust? Go to the bottom. Fine. Just do whatever you want to do. But staying in the middle where we're meant to be, that's very difficult. That's the context. That's the meaning of chapter 3, verse 11 in Ecclesiastes. This is this most important verse. Here, let me read it again. He has made everything beautiful in its time, and God has set eternity into his heart, longing for something, conclusions, and yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning and even to the end. Haddon Robinson said the nature of man is to be addicted, incurably addicted to crossword puzzles, but having a very small vocabulary, and we're going to fill in every box no matter what. So how do we live in this stuck? How do we live as humans ex trying to experience happiness when happiness seems to be thwarted because our nature is to want to know how all particulars fit into the general big beautiful plan? And, but we can't do that. How do we live mid-mass between angels and apes? The answer is found in chapter 5. And it is kind of in the, in the, in the word lot, L-O-T. The idea of lot means, well, it's like if you own a house, your house is on a lot. Well, that lot belongs to you. And some people have an eighth of an acre, and some of you have maybe more than a few acres. That's your lot in life. A predetermined amount of responsibility and experiences. That's your lot. And how we're supposed to live? Look, look what it says in chapter 5, verses 18. Look how lot will be used two times here. This is what I've observed to be good. That is, that it is appropriate for a person to eat and to drink and find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days that 
of life that God has given them, for this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, then to accept their lot and to be happy in their toil, this too is a gift from God. Solomon is saying this, here's how to find happiness. This is where contentment is. One, to understand that you have a lot in life. This is what God has decided for you. Stay right there in your place, mid-mast, somewhere up and down that mast. That's your lot. The second part is, is to enjoy the view from there. Don't try to go higher. Don't descend lower. Just eat and drink and enjoy that toilsome lot. And even that, even that enjoyment is a gift from God. Cherish every moment, in other words. There's no place for brooding or sulking or cursing God. That doesn't work in this because it's, it's, it, do, by doing that, you're, you're saying that, that your lot that God has given you is wrong. And you, you can't enjoy life with that. You're supposed to enjoy every moment. Drink it in. The trivial, the mundane, all these things are a gift from God. Let me put it another way. Like, look at this Venn diagram. This is uh, all the things that matter. And then on the right, these are the things that I can control. Look how small that is, by the way. This is what you should focus on, the overlap between things that matter and what you can control. In Solomon's words, this is your lot. This is your lot. Just enjoy your lot. Let me tell you a story. It's, it's a little bit trivial, but it makes the point. Uh, when my daughter was in high school at Westwood High School, she was the lacrosse captain. And their junior year, they, they lost a game that they should have won to their rival. So their senior year, they said, look, we're going to make up for that loss, and then we're going to take this team to a place they've never been before. And so what they would do is they got... Uh, permanent markers before each game, and they would write some key phrase on their arms uh, so that they would remember, you know, kind of the theme of the season or the theme of the day. They wrote, because of that loss uh, from the previous year, they wrote on their arms, redeem. And they wrote redeem because they couldn't spell revenge, because that's what they really wanted. They wanted revenge. So each each uh, game that they had, they'd go out there, they'd, they'd write redeem on their arms, and they'd play their hearts out, and they had a dynamic season. It was the best season they'd had maybe in the history of Westwood girls lacrosse, so much so that they actually went to the state tournament. Now, the state tournament this, that, that year was up in Dallas, and the state, the finalists, there were always the same four or five teams, college preparatory schools from Dallas, and they... They were amazing. They had a lot of resources. And as a matter of fact, the team that Amy's, Amy played was St. We Have All the Advantage, I think. That's the name of the, team, the school. St. We Have Everything. We're going to kill you, St. That St. Anyway, so Amy got the team together as she, as she was captain, and she said, look, this is what's going to happen today. Okay, we're going to play hard. We're probably going to lose, and we're going to have fun. We're going to play hard. We're going to lose. We're going to have fun. And the word of the day, enjoy. So the girls got those Sharpies, and they wrote enjoy on their upper arms and lower arms, on their thighs. And they went out there, and here's what happened. It, it, was, like, it, was, like a, it was like a Disney story because it was these exclusive preparatory schools 
uh, with all the resources that you can imagine against a, a ragtag public schools. You know, the, the socks didn't match and the uniforms were used three years or so, and then they got into that game, and you wouldn't believe what happened. Actually, you probably would, because life isn't a Disney story. Westwood was pummeled by this school from Dallas. And at the end of the day, here's what happened. They had fun. They did lose. And they played hard. They played hard. They lost. And they had fun. The lot in life was to lose on the way to state championship. But what they could choose to do was to play hard and to have fun. And they did both of those because they chose to. What was out of their control was making it all the way to the finals. That was past them. Because life isn't much of a Disney story, actually. What they did was they enjoyed their lot. Working, God has a beautiful plan. And it's working its way out. And we want to understand that plan, but we can't. Tommy Nelson put it this way. He said, if you look carefully at the architectural designs for both the temple and the tabernacle, you'll notice in all of the furniture, there's not a single suggestion box. <laughs> he, God doesn't care what you think of his plan. God doesn't care if um, you understand it because you won't. And so what you can choose to do is to enjoy the lot that he's given you. That's where you find it is not trying to negotiate with God to change it, but to just enjoy it. So the passage that we're looking at uh, explains that at the very beginning, and now it's just going to go through the various paradoxes that people experience, you and I, as followers of God. We, we just kind of go into these life situations, and we wonder, we ask ourselves, God, a beautiful plan? It, have you, do you see what I see? Because it doesn't look all that beautiful. It doesn't look like it's working its way out here. And paradoxes or problems, this is where we find ourselves in temptation to either rise up and take control or slide down and say, who cares? I'm just going to enjoy whatever I've got left. I'm going to become like one of the apes. And you look around, you look at these, there's six of them, we only have time for five, but look, look, look how they express themselves. The first paradox he looks at is the idea of inequity or injustice that's going on all around us. Look at verse 16 and ask yourself, does it sound like God has a beautiful plan? He says, furthermore, I've seen under the sun that in the place of justice there is wickedness and in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. Evil men taking advantage. And he's, he's seeing all that, doesn't look like a beautiful plan, and it's tempting to want to climb up to that crow's nest to grind our teeth and become like a vigilante. No wonder vigilante movies are so popular. They tease us to want to go up or we just like quit and say, you know what? Too bad for them. I'm just going to, you know, get as big a house as I can afford and have as much fun as I can afford. And injustice is like, I don't know, out of my responsibility. I'm going to turn a blind eye to it. You know what happens a lot of times in the Christian community, this has been my experience personally and, and with other people, is they get involved in issues of justice, social justice, uh, slave trade, for example, and, and that's a good thing. But they find themselves too high up that mast, maybe even in the crow's nest, when they think that that social justice is up to them. It's, it's theirs to solve. And, and they go to bed each night with the weight of the world on their shoulders, and God's saying, 
No, that's not where you're supposed to be living. You're not a small G God. Get back down the mast where you belong. You don't have to understand the big picture. Enjoy that. Verse 17, he says, this is the answer to that problem. He said, and I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man for a time, for there is a time for every matter and every, for every deed that is there. He's saying there is justice coming, and we're not going to be the ones giving it, and we need to just trust that God is going to do that. Are they getting away with this? Yes, but not for long. Are they, like, wreaking havoc, and there's nothing that seems to be able to be done? Mm-hmm. Just now, though. Later, they'll meet God. Do you think, like, Pol Pot and Hitler are living in a condo with a beautiful view? That's not how it ends. Our souls know that there will be absolute justice, and God will, and we will all give an answer for our actions of righteousness and wickedness. That's how that's answered. Until then, we just enjoy the view from mid-mast. The second paradox he looks at is death itself. It's this ultimate enigma. We just can't understand the frailty of, of a human life. Look what he says in verse 18. I, so I said to myself, as for humans, God tests them so, so that, that they may see that they are just like animals. Surely the fate of a human, of human beings is like that of an animal. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust they all return. There's that sentence that you hear at funerals, whether they're Christian or non-Christian, from dust we came, from dust we return. And what Solomon is asking here, it just doesn't seem like there's a majesty to the making of a man. He just seems so much like an animal. He doesn't have any advantage as animals. In other words, all it takes is a plague, right? Like right now, all it takes is a plague or evil men, you know, or just laps around the sun. But we all ultimately end up becoming dirt, just like dogs, just like common hamsters. We have no advantage to them. And he says, yeah, we're, we're kind of like that. We are. Look what he says in 20 and 21 and 22, though. He says that, that the breath of man ascends upward and the breath of beast descends downwards to the dust. I have seen that nothing is better than then that man should be happy in his activities, for that is his lot. Solomon's saying, gosh, it just seems like we're just animals. And he says, yeah, we kind of are. We're mammals. We're just here today and gone tomorrow. But then in this verse, he says, but we're like angels. The breath of an animal just goes into the dirt and dies, but the breath, the spirit of a man go, ascends to heaven. We are mammals with a soul. No, we are souls with a mammal body. So, preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. How do you live with that? How are you supposed to express that if you're living by faith? He's saying, enjoy every single moment. Happy with each and every activity that you find yourself in. Play your part. Just play your part. No one gets out of this thing alive. Knowing that, we back up and we cherish every, every moment, every aspect of, of, of the gifts of God. 
You know, sometimes it's, it's, it's living like a three-year-old prays. Have you ever had a three-year-old pray, like and maybe the evening meal blessing? He bows his little head and says, you know, thank you, God. They don't pray for the meal. Thank you, God, for these mashed potatoes. I love mashed potatoes. Thank you, God, for the meat. I like that meat, too. I'm going to thank you anyway, God, for the green beans. I'm gonna, I hope I don't have to eat all of them. And then, they, look, there's a bird, God. Oh, thank you for the bird. And there's a squirrel. I thank you for that, too. Now, as a grown-up at the table, you're realizing he's going to pray for every particular thing. We're never going to eat this meal. It's going to be cold, that's for sure. But what's happening in that little third, three-year-old's mind is he's, he's understanding the details of his lot. And he's thanking God for every part of that lot. And when we live that way, sure, we're going we're gonna to live a life that glorifies God. We're going to die, and then we're going to be forgotten very soon after that. But why not enjoy every aspect of what our lot is? I could thank God that I don't have perfect vision because if I did, I could have been a pilot for the Air Force, which is what I wanted to do. But I didn't get that in my lot. I didn't get perfect vision. So I can thank God that I'm still here. <laughs> Probably would have crashed that plane. I don't have to understand God's beautiful plan. I don't have to care about God's beautiful plan. I just have to know that he has one. And it's way beyond my ability to comprehend that plan. Let God run his universe. Love your lot. Enjoy your lot. Know your lot and enjoy your lot. The third thing he mentions is oppressed, the oppressed uh, without having any comfort. He's going to talk about how evil happens in people's lives and there's no comforting them. Look what it says in chapter 4, verse 1. And then I looked again at all the acts of the oppressed, of, the, of oppression that were being done under the sun, and behold, I saw tears of the oppressed, and that no one, there was no one there to comfort them. And on the side of the oppressors, there was power, but they had no one to comfort them. In other words, they're seeing evil take place, and there's no one even there to console the victims. And here's, here's the answer that he gives to the problem of evil. No answer, no explanation. Look what he says in verse 2. So, I congratulated the dead who are already dead more than, who, who are already dead more than the living who are still living. But better off than both of them were the one who had never existed who has never seen evil activity that is done under the sun. He's saying, look, I, I don't understand this. Uh, the only person better off than these victims of evil are people that have never existed. In other words, he's throwing his hands up. And, and what I love about his throwing his hands up is he's not trying to explain away evil. And here's, here's, why, here's why he's staying out of trouble in the context of the nature of, of, of man, being on that mast. You see sometimes people trying to connect dots, almost like, you know, stars in the sky and seeing how they're lions and crabs. I, I, you, you might have done this. I, I've heard this before. Some, I'm going to exaggerate the story, but let's just pretend there's a, a young girl and she's been taken captive and she's been tortured and, and mistreated even to the point of her death. And they're having the funeral and there's a little coffin down front and, and then you invite Drunk Uncle Billy. And Drunk Uncle Billy comes, and he's been reading the stories in the paper, and, and he's found himself involved in this young girl's existence and comes to that funeral, and, like, there's a breakthrough. Like, he gets it now. 
surrenders his life to the Lord. He wants to live for him. He changes his life. He's no longer drunk Uncle Billy. He becomes a youth pastor. He's a youth, he's a 50-year-old youth pastor. And then somebody says, maybe, maybe that little girl had to experience all that evil so drunk Uncle Billy would turn his life around. Okay, that's stupid. That's not how God works, the plan. I mean, those two things are not connected. You're seeing things in the sky that don't exist. If God wants drunk Uncle Billy to follow him, he could use some greasy-haired televangelist on a cable station. He doesn't need to torture a small girl to make that happen. But that's, that's an attempt to, to see the plan. And, the, and the, it's... We gotta, we gotta know our, we gotta stay in our lane, right? We gotta know our lot. We gotta realize that there's something much more beautiful here going on, and it's beyond our comprehension to understand. Because if you can come up with a storyline where that fits, I don't want to know your story. God's plan, God's beautiful thing that He's working on, it's bigger than we can comprehend, and we need to just leave that to Him. Another paradox here. The fourth one is labor with rivalry. Do we have to live in the law of the jungle? Why is it so competitive out there? And so he says this, I have seen rivalry. I, I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is a result of rivalry between man and his neighbor. This too is vanity and striving after the wind. Could we just like get some ambitious things done without having to compete with someone else? Could we do our best without beating someone else there? It's this loveless com competition that he sees, and he's wondering, why do we have to live in a dog-eat-dog -dog world? Like, you know, think about it, like an L.A., these are picturesque, but uh, L.A. law office or Wall Street uh, competition between those guys. And he just says, don't climb to the top and become a conqueror. Don't give up on the law, living in the jungle here and slide down and say, I'm just going to eat junk food and play video games. It's too rough out there for me. What he's trying to say here is he's, look what he says. He says, don't do those two things. He says, verse five, a fool just folds his hands and then consumes his own flesh. Folds his hands means being lazy, I'm sleeping in. And then the other extreme is, you know, working too hard. One handful of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after the wind. Just play hard and enjoy. <laughs> Play hard and enjoy yourself. That's what you're supposed to do. Live within your lot. Don't try too hard. And that, that actually leads to, by the way, these lead to this idea of loneliness. Um, there's a, a plaguing sense of, of being isolated, not just from the other parts of creation, you know, animals and angels, but also from each other. How do we live, how do we live in, in this place that's unique? And he's going to argue here towards, he's going to be talking about the Scrooge-type people that, that work so hard at life, but they don't have anyone to share their life with. Look what he says in chapter 4 in his Paradox of Loneliness. There was a certain man without any dependents, having neither a son nor a brother, and, that, and, and yet there was no end to all of his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he, and he never asked and for whom am I laboring and depriving myself the pleasures? This too is vanity and is grievous, a grievous task. This is that, again, this Ebenezer Scrooge that's doing all this hard work. He's making some money, but for what purpose? To who does he get to share it with? Solomon's talking about 
the lonely people, like in Beatles. Like I look at all the lonely people, where do they all come from? And he's looking at mankind in mass and he says, how do you live in this unique place on this mass? How do you live? How do you thrive? And he says this, you thrive with friends. That's how. You find other people to enjoy the mast together. Look what he says. It's in the context, remember, it's in the context of overworking. He says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them fails, if either one of them fails like individually, the one will lift up the other in his, his, lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls and there's not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm all by themselves? And, and if one overpowers him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three friends, right? That strand is not quickly torn apart. He's saying, look, in, in the context of how difficult life is and just how to make a living, why not maybe not make as much money, but enjoy making the money that you make? In other words, in having two fists full of money and no one to share it with, wouldn't it be better just to have one handful of money and a lot of friends? Wouldn't it be great? This is, that's, this is the power of the church, and particularly this church, where we're trying to find our friends for, for integrity, a friend for character, so that we can enjoy the life, the lot that we've been given. How do you survive in this kind of world? Your lot with others. So here's the thing. How do we, we started off with how do you find pleasure in life? How do you find happiness in life? And it was to understand what our lot is and to enjoy our lot. Pascal's quote at the beginning was, every decision we make is towards happiness. Every choice of every man is towards happiness, even the one who's hanging himself. Pascal later says this about true happiness. Look at this quote. If a man were truly happy, it would be in unconscious self-forgetfulness that his greatest happiness would lie, like all the saints and like God himself. Happiness is found when we become like Christ in all of life, and the idea of that is when we forget about ourselves. And how do we do that? We can become lost in the moments of life. Those gifts from God, the lot that we've been given, we understand that. We don't wrestle with that. We don't fight with that. We don't try to figure out how it all fits together. We just enjoy those moments. We, we understand what our lot is, and then we enjoy that lot. And God, if he gives us great wealth or little wealth, it doesn't matter. It's whether we're content in that or not. That's how we glorify God. That's how we live by faith by being grateful and appreciative and knowing our place in creation and knowing our place in the world. That's the gift from God. Even that is a gift from God. So as we embark and go forward, Grace, this is a great way to live. Seize the day, seize the year, seize the moment. Seize the moment. That is a gift from God. Let's pray to that end, okay? Lord, I'd ask that you would help us, uh, first of all, understand how we, how we rebel against the way we're designed and made in your image, but also contained in an animal skin, and how we find ourselves dropping to the deck and following our, our bestial appetites of wanting to be left alone or to be 
just in, enjoyed physical pleasures or, or just being lazy. I'd ask that you would call that out and saying we're not to be like animals. I'd ask that the times that we rise above where we were meant to be and try to take control and try to use power or try to see things and how they all fit together, and that's chasing the wind as well. Lord, I'd ask that you'd help us understand our lot as humans and understand our place as an individual, the gifts you've given us and the gifts you've withheld from us. They're all part of a beautiful plan. And we can't know that plan. It's beyond our abilities. And I'd ask that you would help us be settled in that so that we might just enjoy each moment. And in that enjoyment, it would be praise towards you. Let us glorify you in, in, in hearts that are overwhelmed with gratitude. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope you'd enjoy, you've enjoyed the lessons from Ecclesiastes 3 through 5 from our guide Solomon. Next week, we'll continue our journey in understanding the book of Ecclesiastes. See you then.